Well, it is a pleasure and a privilege to be here with you this morning. And as Oliver said, served at our church for three years before coming uh, up here. And he was, in a word, was faithful. Greatly helped us out in a season of our growth. And we're thankful for all the years we had with the Jones family. We always knew he kept his hometown of Spokane in his heart. And so we were bummed to see him go, but at the same time, not terribly surprised he made it back up here. It does seem like this was where he was meant to be. And we trust God's providence to direct his steps. So we are thankful for all the years. Now it's your turn to take care of him as he serves you here. So we're grateful that he's here, though. For our time this morning, why don't you take your Bibles, open them to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Now, 500 years ago, North and South America were filled with Native Americans. And historians estimate there were about 50 million before the Europeans came across the continents. But most would not survive long after contact with the Europeans. Why not? Well, the primary factor was disease. They didn't have an immunity built up to diseases like smallpox. But there's another factor that led to their decline, and it was disunity. As the Europeans colonized the Americas, the natives failed to repel them. And they could have, because they vastly outnumbered the Europeans. If they just banded together, they could have easily pushed the Europeans out. That never happened, because these tribes could not unify. Instead, the Europeans found hundreds of scattered tribes, and they're too busy fighting among themselves to do anything about it. And this made their land easy picking for the colonists. In fact, some tribes would ally with the Europeans to fight their rival tribes. This infighting blinded them to the bigger threat, and we all know the result. They were essentially wiped out. This is tragic for the Native Americans, but there's a lesson to be learned here, even for us in the church today, because this history is repeating itself with the church. We face an increasingly dark and hostile culture around us. The Lord calls us as the church to be salt and light, to be a distinct witness. The world, in a sense, is seeking to colonize the church, to put its light out. Already many have been taken captive through philosophy and empty deception, as Colossians 2 warns. And so this is a time when the church needs a unified response. The problem is churches can be a lot like little tribes. And we've let many secondary issues distract us from our mission and our real threats. For one, you have a lot of tribal infighting where some Christians spend more time fighting against other Christian tribes than, for example, evangelizing the lost. In addition, there's a lot of strife within a tribe. Local churches become easily divided when people focus more on issues of personal preference than just the Lord's call for the church. Now, don't get me wrong. Sometimes division is necessary. There is a time to separate from false brethren. We can't possibly unite with those who deny the Lord or the gospel or the truth. But let's face it, when you look at what normally divides a local church, it's not gospel issues. Most times it's preference issues or interpersonal issues or methodology issues. Secondary issues get elevated to first importance. Sometimes prideful or less mature Christians will choose the wrong hills to die on. And the enemy finds an easy path to divide and conquer. Now, I, I don't really know your church. I don't know what is, issues you're all facing, but I have been asked to preach to a one-year-old church plant. So I can say that if you don't achieve unity here, that this church won't be here in five years. You have to come together in Christ, the Savior, the head. He is the glue that holds the body together. Find your, your unity in him, your identity in him, your, your purpose in him together. 
And I can't say that a spirit of humility is required to get that. Humility is the chief virtue of the believer, I would say. And by humility, I don't mean being a doormat, a pushover, where you're just always capitulating just to keep the peace. Humility is not about being weak-willed. In fact, the church needs men and leaders who are strong-willed. The kicker is that you can't be self-willed. Keep your strong will. Be strong will. Just submit your will entirely to Christ's will and then use that strength of your will for his purposes. You've died to self-will. You're just in it for his purposes. But when you're dominated by self-will, you've got trouble. And that stems from pride. That will divide a church. This is why elders, Titus 1-7, are required not to be self-willed. Meanwhile, false teachers are always described as, 2 Peter 2.10, self-will. Self-will comes from a deep-seated pride. It's a my way or the highway mentality. And we're not talking about just gospel truth, but preference issues. And it just spells trouble. You need to find unity through humility from the top down, from Christ the head to your church leaders to the body. Together, serving as one with the Lord's will and his purposes, and you'll reap the harvest of peace and joy in in a local church. This is not easy because we're all still sinners. Sin divides us. And so we need to be exhorted in this area of unity all the time. This was literally one of the first issues the early church faced. All the first church plants, the first ever church plants, were not immune from this issue of division, the threat. This explains why unity is heavily featured in all of the Apostle Paul's letters. As soon as these churches were formed, they needed to be admonished to unity. The Roman church needed it. The Ephesian church needed it. The Colossian church needed it. The Corinthian church definitely needed it. And Paul exhorts them all the time in his letters. He tells them, be of the same mind, show tolerance for one another in love, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, uh, forbear with one another. And then Colossians 3.14, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And so they needed these exhortations because they were prone to self-will. They're prone to divide over the wrong things, and so am I. So are we. I need these reminders. My church needs these reminders. Your church needs these reminders. We have unity in Christ by the Spirit, but we need to preserve it. This is something even good churches need to work on. And this gets us to Philippians, because Philippians, that, that church was a good church. The Philippian church was a solid church, but even they needed to be exhorted on unity. The Philippian church had solid doctrine. Paul does not need to correct them on any serious doctrine in this letter, unlike the Corinthians or the Galatians. You can tell they were dearly beloved to Paul. He had them in his heart. But this is perhaps why he was all the more grieved to find out that they were being divided, that that cracks were forming in the church. Fissures were forming among them, but over the wrong things. Self-will and interpersonal conflict were spoiling their growth and stunting their gospel witness. And so Paul writes to exhort them, and I think we need to take these exhortations to heart just as much today. The text we're going to look at is Philippians 2, 3 through 4. But still before we get there, I want to situate you in the context of Philippians, because I know you're going through Ephesians. Paul wrote both of those back-to-back in prison, but we'll just hop over to Philippians for today. After a 
very long introduction, all of chapter 1. He finally gets to the first command, the first admonition, the whole letter. It's back in chapter 1, verse 27. This really is the main thrust of the whole letter. He tells them, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you. You are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And they know Christ. They've already believed in him. Now they just need to live it out. It's like Ephesians 4.1. They need to walk in a manner worthy of their calling and start living out their faith. But Paul has a specific end in mind, namely their unity. He wants to see them standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. That's it. That's the bullseye for your church, for any church. We're to be of one mind, striving together, same mission for the faith of the gospel. Like back in chapter 1, verse 5, Paul already thanked God for them because they were his gospel partners. This was not some church under Paul. They were side by side. They were his faithful partners in just reaching the world with uh, the gospel. But that ministry was being threatened by their disunity. If, if the church unraveled, their gospel witness would unravel. I mean, nylon ropes are incredibly strong. They can hold thousands of pounds, but if you've ever looked closely, you'll see they're formed by weaving together three to five smaller nylon ropes. Each of those themselves is composed by weaving together just threads of nylon. You fully unravel, you just get a single fiber of nylon, it can barely hold anything. It has no strength. Its strength only comes when it's woven together and becomes increasingly strong. And so it is with the church. You are a local church plant. You're trying to reach this northern Spokane area or wherever we really are, I don't know. And that's great. This community needs a lighthouse. I know that for sure. But your light will only shine brightly if you weave together with one mind, one purpose in Christ. But unfortunately, all too many churches unravel from the inside out. You know, the Philippine church was facing some external threats. Paul addresses that in verse 28 of chapter 1. He talks about their outside opponents. And their opponents might persecute them, might cause them suffering, kind of like they did Paul. Remember, he's writing this from his first Roman imprisonment. His opponents made him suffer. That's not really that big of a deal. God can use even something like imprisonment to advance the gospel, like Paul testifies in Philippians chapter 1. Suffering is not the real threat here. The real threat is the church scattering and giving up because they're scared. And so he tells them, don't let them tear you apart. Paul first addresses their external threats in the end of chapter 1. But even that, that's not their biggest threat. Their biggest threat is internal Internal division will, will far sooner take them out of the gospel race. So he spends much more time dealing with that, starting in chapter 2. Again, this is a good church. It's a healthy church. But cracks were forming in their foundation. Catch a glimpse of it at the end of the letter. Just look at chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. He saves it for the end. Maybe even the main reason he's writing this letter to address this conflict. Chapter 4. Verse 1, he says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. This is the echo of the theme verse. Verse 2, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. 
Indeed, true companion. I ask you also to help these women who have shared in my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. He's got to call a few people out by name. And then clearly there's some conflict brewing between two prominent women in this local church. And most likely everyone else was taking sides. We don't know the exact nature of this conflict, but it was not theological. This was personal. And like so many churches today, issues of personal preference come to the forefront, which shouldn't divide the church, but they so often do. And when selfishness plus pride prevail, and that's a recipe for division. You have to deal with little cracks before they grow. You used to have a old truck, 99 F-150, you got a little tiny pebble, hit the windshield and got a chip. I really hate that. But it was extremely small, it was annoying, I just ignored it. It's just a chip, what are you going to do? So I ignored it. A little, while, a little while later, it turned into a small crack. Still, just very small, I just, whatever, I just ignored it. Fast forward a couple years, that crack is now half the windshield. I could no longer ignore it. I had to replace now the whole thing. A $500 fix could have been a $5 fix if I had just done it right away. And conflict in local churches is not that different. All this goes to say here in chapter 2, or you can go back to chapter 2. Paul's going to hit them with the, with the broadside blast on the subject of unity because they needed to hear it. And so do we. He starts in verse 1. He gives them the prerequisites of unity. There's four of them. He says, chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, like four legs of a table, four pillars on which our unity rests, these four prerequisites. I can look at them closely. The thing is, though, they've already been met. These are if statements, they're conditional, but in the Greek it's what's known as a first-class conditional, which just means they're assumed to be true, that they've already been met. You could just as easily translate these as since, since we already have these things. In salvation, we have the foundation for unity. Notice, Paul doesn't say, if you look the same, if you like the same things, if you all have the same preference in musical worship, if you all have the same preferences on everything, then pursue unity. Our unity is not external, it's not superficial. It's driven by our common salvation in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ, you have salvation, you have everything you need to pursue unity with the church. You have the foundation for unity. With this in mind, in next verse 2, he paints the picture of unity. And this is what unity should look like in the church. Verse 2, he says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same purpose, or, or the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. The table of unity has four legs in verse 1. Here it's like it has four sides, four pictures showing us what it should look like in a local church. Again, we're not going to impact this, but it centers on being united around a servant's mindset. We're here to serve the Lord and one another, not self. And the picture is of believers who are driven not by their will, but the Lord's will. And not by selfish interests, but the Lord's interests. In love and by the Spirit, we are to interlock arms and march and step in the same direction, according to the Lord's purposes. 
And that purpose primarily is to exalt God by edifying believers and evangelizing the lost. This is the mission we're called to pursue. It can only be achieved through unity, and this is why we're called to pursue unity. I know you've just learned Ephesians 4. We are united by the Spirit, but now we must preserve it. We're called to preserve and pursue that unity. And so that is what Paul emphasizes in verses 3 and 4, and that's our text for today. I know it's a long introduction, but it's needed to, to transplant you into the soil of Philippians 2 for a day. But after giving us the prerequisites of unity and the picture of unity, verses 3 and 4, we we get the pursuit of unity. And let's read these. Verse 3, he says next, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. From this little pair of verses, we find three essential practices of unity. This is what we're going to spend our time on, for the rest of our time at least. And if just as an individual Christian and as a church plant collectively, you could just embody these three practices, there's no telling what God could do through you to reach this community for Christ. Three practices of unity. Let's just consider these together. And they're extremely simple. We just need these in the front of our mind. The first is to deny self. Number one, deny self from verse three. Do nothing from self, selfishness or empty conceit. Paul starts in verse three by describing our pursuit of unity negatively, what we must avoid, put off. This is what kills unity, selfishness. Selfishness is always at the root of division. Just think of any conflict you've been in, whether in the church or in your family and Chances are some self-will, some selfish desire was at the root of that conflict. We, we just want what we want. We're selfish creatures. We have wants and desires, and when our wants and desires run up against someone else's conflicting wants and desires, and no one budges, you have conflict, and usually thereafter, division. Now, again, sometimes conflict and division are unavoidable. When others deny the Lord, deny the gospel, deny biblical truth, there can be no compromise. We all know that. I think we we all understand that. That's not what the Philippians were facing, though. They're not being plagued by heresy. They're being plagued by selfish interests. And so the solution is going to involve some denying of self. It says in verse 3, do nothing from selfishness. Or you might say selfish ambition. Word for this in the Greek is Eritrea. And it was originally used to refer to day laborers. In the ancient world, most workers were day laborers. You just work for a day's wage. The thing is, there's way more workers than jobs, which meant competition was fierce to get work. If you want to work for the day, which means you want to eat for the day, you've got to be fiercely competitive. You've got to look out for number one. I mean, think about it. If there's one job opening for the day and then ten workers... You have to be cutthroat selfish to to make sure you get that position. And this word came to be used of those who were cutthroat selfish. This is selfish ambition. It's the desire to get ahead, even at the expense of others. It's where you view others as a means to an end, which is an obstacle to overcome. And unity for such people is, by definition, impossible. And sadly, this attitude is not limited to the secular world. Selfish ambition 
believe it or not, can be found in the church. But that's because the church is still filled with sinners. We still retain the sinful flesh. And, but when you don't deny self, you're going to find conflict. In fact, you can even have Christians who are doing good things, but for selfish reasons, it will still end up dividing. In fact, that's what Paul faced in Rome. Back in chapter 1, verse 17, you can even look there. He relates how some men were proclaiming Christ out of selfish ambition. Same word. He says, rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. You have people in Rome preaching the true gospel, but from selfish motives. They saw the power vacuum that was created now that the great apostle Paul is in prison. They want his prestige for themselves. They're preaching just for their own glory. A little cut in the action. And the point Paul is making is that unity is impossible if Christians are just in it for themselves. If they're doing this whole Christian thing just to get something for themselves, you're not going to arrive at unity that way. Selfishness and rivalry are guaranteed to destroy unity. God will never bless Christians who are consumed not with God's interests, but their own. James 3.16, it says, For wherever jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. So the first negative to avoid is selfishness, selfish ambition. Next in verse 3, he mentions empty conceit. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. This word literally means vainglory. You can call it cheap pride. If you forget what conceit means, just take the word conceited. Someone who thinks more highly of themselves than they should. It refers to the person who has an excessively high opinion of self. I'm sure you don't know anyone like that. There are people like that. It's all about the self, a love of self, a person who believes they're better than others. Their interests should be served. And of course, for for most people, their conceit is grossly misplaced. The president gets to feel like he's the most powerful person in the world because he is. You don't. You are not. That doesn't stop people from acting like they are the most important person in the world. Everyone else should serve them, hence empty conceit. This is a vain glory. They, they don't merit any glory. These people are like a, they're like a balloon. The bigger they get on the outside, the more empty they are on the inside. What's so dangerous is that our culture today is trained to be like this, is, is filled with this. We're all about vain glory. When this attitude seeps into the church, I mean, it spells real trouble. This pride goes before the fall. And Paul's point is that this, this conceit, this inflated view of self is going to destroy biblical unity. I guess it's not that prideful people can't have unity. It's just that the only unity they seek is centered on themselves. They're the sun. You can be a planet. You can be a moon revolving around them, but there's no room for another star. Either revolve around their will or move on. And such self-importance is the death knell to meaningful unity. And so both of these heart attitudes must be denied. None of your actions must stem from these. See the key word in verse 3? Nothing. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. There's no exceptions here. Not even your good deeds should be done from, from selfish motivations. It's like baking a cake using rotten eggs. It spoils the whole thing. And likewise, selfishness has a way of souring even your good deeds. And so first things first, you have to just be aware 
and constantly check your own motives. Why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you coming to church? Why are you serving at this church? Now, are you secretly trying to serve self? Do you have some inner motive to get something? Are you seeking praise or acclaim? Are you doing it to actually be served in return? Why do you do what you do? Make sure none of it comes from selfishness or empty conceit. You should be all about the Lord's interests where you're doing all that you do to serve him and others. And as, as the Lord said, if you're going to follow him, as he says, you, you have to first, what, deny self. You want to follow me, first deny yourself, pick up your cross, then you can follow me. It starts always with a denial of self. Take this to heart. Jesus is Lord, not you. Deny self. Follow him. This goes hand in hand with number two, humble self. The second pursuit, a practical way to pursue unity is to humble self. Let's read all verse three. This is do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. This is obviously a corollary to denying self. It takes, it takes great humility to deny self. You realize the universe does not revolve around you. In the ancient world, humility was not a virtue. It was a vice. Humility was frowned upon. It was seen as a sign of weakness. Instead, Roman culture, blatant pride was glorified. And those times have returned. I mean, those who boast get ahead. Humility is for like the weak and the poor because they don't have anything to boast about. In reality, none of us have anything to boast about. This phrase in verse 3, humility of mind, it's just one word in the Greek. It speaks of lowliness of mind. It's where we esteem ourselves small. And it's all about having an accurate view of self. And the world right now has the highest view of self in human history. Our culture tells us you are so important, you can define your own reality, you can choose your own gender, you can speak your own truth. The Bible says the exact opposite. I mean, first, you owe your very life to God. Every breath you breathe is borrowed. Every advantage you have is from him. You owe God everything. It might very well be that you are smarter, richer, and healthier than someone else. But even that you owe to God's common grace. You owe every advantage to him. Like Paul questions in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. Who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? Nothing. So don't boast. All such boasting is eliminated when you see yourself rightly under God as just a creature. Who do you think you are? Only when you see God for who he is, really big, do you see yourself for who you are, really small. And this is all magnified a hundredfold when you bring in salvation. Because you also owe your spiritual life to God. You and I, we were spiritually dead. We were lost in our sins. We were by nature children of wrath. But God, in his great mercy, sent his son Christ to live, to die on the cross, to pay for our sins, to rise from the dead, that we might be forgiven, reconciled, adopted, redeemed. He saved us from wrath to come, and to be saved, you must look upon him by faith. But even in that faith, there's no boasting. This all stems from grace. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, he says, by his doing, by God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus. By his doing, you're in Christ. 
Therefore, let him who boasts, if you're going to boast, boast in the Lord. We don't boast in self. We boast in the Lord. Do you know Christ as your Lord and Savior? If you happen to be here today and you don't, call upon him today by faith. The Savior can redeem you, forgive you, make you new. But this salvation should absolutely floor you in humility. We don't deserve this gift. We, we don't earn it. This is all by grace. We were just guilty convicts on spiritual death row. But we've been redeemed and set free by King Jesus. And so all of this to just instantly deflate any ego or pride you have. And when you get these truths, how can you really think you're better than anyone else? The only reason you have what you have is just God's grace. Physically, spiritually, all every advantage you might have is just God's grace. I, what did I do to earn or deserve this? Nothing. Don't forget James 4, 6. Never forget James 4, 6. God is opposed to the proud. He makes it his business to just push down the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. You must have this humility of mind. Right? First, humility of mind all the time. Only then can you do the rest of verse 3. Right? With humility of mind, he says then, regard one another as more important than yourselves. You can't do that without humility. But speaking of, the issue here is not worth. Paul's not establishing a pecking order where you are actually worth less than others around you. He's not talking about esteeming others as better, but just treating others as better. That's what verse 4 is all about. It's not a new sentence. Verse 4 really just carries on in verse 3. It's just about putting the needs of others ahead of your own. Giving preference to others. It's Romans 12.10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. You're called to apply this to everyone. Not just the rich, the intelligent, the righteous, even the meek, the poor, the sinner. In, in a way, it's, it's almost easy to treat the billionaire or the celebrity as better than ourselves. They have a clout. But what about the stay-at-home mom, or the day laborer, or the handicapped person, or the elderly couple, or your enemy? Just imagine a church, or a friendship, or a marriage, where both parties actually treated one another as more important than themselves. Imagine a relationship without selfishness, where your self-will is gone, you're just in it to serve the other person. If that could ever actually happen, can you imagine where conflict would come from? How could there ever be conflict in that type of a relationship? The only conflict would be over who gets to serve who. Like two people going out to dinner and they're fighting over who gets to pay the bill. I'll take that conflict. That's fine. And I'll let you pay. No. But I mean, you get the point. You can see how this, this practice of, of treating others more important than yourself is central to unity, especially within the church. This is all about selfishness versus selflessness. If we actually just started doing this, if we actually just regarded the interests of others, the righteous interests of others ahead of our own, you would see unity as a result. If this is hard for you to humble yourself, which let me warn you, God has a way of humbling those who walk in pride. and It's not going to be pleasant. He will discipline you to humble you. Far better, as James 4.10 says, just humble yourself in the presence of the Lord. And practically speaking, you do that 
by having a high view of God and a low view of self. Go, go to Scripture. Study the Scripture first. See God for who He is. He's the Creator. You're not, by the way. He's the Creator. He's the Sustainer. He's King. He's Judge. See His justice and His wrath. See His love and His mercy. Just gain a high view of God. And then reflect on yourself. See your own sin. Preaching through the Beatitudes in my church, Matthew 5. Become poor in spirit, where you see your spiritual bankruptcy before this God. You see your record book of sins that reach to the heavens, all of which, by the way, Christ nailed to the cross. If the Spirit is in you, as these truths renew your mind, you will be humble. You will be humble. We need to be renewing our mind with the Word to achieve humility. And then you realize it's not about you. Life is not about you. The church is not about you. It's all about Christ. We exist for his glory. Don't forget, Philippians 1 is maybe my favorite verse, 121, for me, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Life is about Christ. We exist for his glory. We're here for his work. You're at this church for his purposes, not your own. And the power of the church comes when we're all sold out to this. If you could just deny yourself and humble yourself, you'd be on your way to achieving a, a really powerful unity. Let's add one more pursuit, though. Deny self, humble self. Third, serve others. I told you it's not complicated. It's, it's very simple. We just need to do it. But deny self, humble self. Third, serve others. Into verse 4. He adds, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. Only after you deny yourself and humble yourself can you truly serve others from the right heart. And this verse expresses the servant's mindset that was founded in verse 2. This is the, the essential picture of the church's unity is a one-mindedness where we're all serving the same purpose. It's not like we're robots, we all lose our individuality. It's just that we have the same mindset. And that's, that's Christ's mindset. That's a servant's mindset. We believe with Christ that it is better to serve than to be served. We believe that, right? We say we believe that. We should believe that. It's better to serve than to be served. Remember that time when the disciples were arguing amongst themselves which one was the greatest on the way to the cross? They're wondering which of them is the greatest. That whole discussion came from selfishness, self-will, vainglory, pride. And what did it do? It just divided them. What did Christ say right after Matthew 20, verse 26? It's not this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came first to serve us. Now he tells us to follow him by serving others. Paul puts it this way, look out for the interests of others. That's what you do, look out for the interests of others. The word he uses here for look out, it's a word from which we get our word scope. It means to set your eye on something, to be focused on something. The Lord now wants us to follow him with the laser-like intensity of serving others. This is tangibly a big way we follow Jesus, serving others. Your approach to the church should be to serve, not to be served. 
So does that describe how you relate to the church? This church even, are you, a, are you an others-focused Christian or a self-focused Christian? Even this morning, let me just ask you, before church, what was capturing your mind? Was it your appearance? Were you more focused on the way you look, your hair, clothes, your makeup? Were you already thinking about the things you want to do after church? Was your mind set on something you hoped to gain? Or were you thinking about others? Were you praying for the service? Were you thinking about that one person you want to make sure you greet and encourage? Were you gearing up to serve? And I'll tell you what, if you ever feel disconnected from the church body, just serve. Try putting into practice this servant mindset. You'll find how the Lord knits you together to one another. Nothing unifies like a true selfless service. And you'll, you'll get the yield of joy and peace. You know, back to verse 4, he says, Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, also the interests of others. We all have personal interests, wants, desires. These are not necessarily evil or wrong. But the point he's making is, look, we already look out for ourselves enough. It's like when Christ said, love your neighbor as yourself. Like, we already love ourselves plenty. Just, just give some of that love to your neighbor. You already look out for your own interests, plenty. Just just give some to someone else. In fact, go so far as to putting their interests ahead of your own. I mean, of all people, Christ himself was entirely entitled to be served by his divine nature and even his human birthright. All humanity should be serving him, and they will. But he came first to serve us. Jesus knew this would please his Father, And so it goes for us. God is pleased when we, his children, serve one another in love. This is Romans 15, 1 through 3. It says, We who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength, and not just please ourselves. Stop just thinking about yourself. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. He says, For even Christ did not please himself. He came looking out for us. We should be here looking out for one another. As a quick aside, can I just point out this, this teaching here on unity through humility? It's also like marriage 101. I use this counseling for marriage all the time. I know the primary object is the church, but as a subset, this is like marriage counseling 101. These two verses. If only you and your spouse would just exhibit these pursuits you would see a lot more peace in your marriage. God designed marriage to be a relationship of unity. It's the ultimate unity. It's a one flesh union. Two come together as one. That is impossible for two sinners unless you do it the Lord's way. Where both come together to pursue the interests of God and the other, not themselves. I mean, husbands, doesn't God already call you to deny yourself, to lay down your life to love your wife. You're going to learn that soon in Ephesians 5. Maybe one day, I guess. You're going pretty slow, right? Eventually. <laughs> Look, that includes dying to your selfish interests where you serve her needs or living with her in an understanding way. And wives, you're called to follow the lead of your husband. That requires a certain humility, but do so in love. If you both truly root out selfishness in your hearts and, and strive, like really strive to meet the needs of the other, Almost like it's a competition, you would see a lot of conflict vanish. In marriage, there is no such thing as compatibility. 
That is a myth. You're both sinners. There's no chance your desires, your personal desires, will align with your spouse's desires 24-7. It will never happen. There will come a time when your wants will come into conflict with their wants. And when that time comes, who's going to budge? So often, we, we just do this the way of the world. We want what we want. We're going to get it by yelling and name-calling, by silent treat, treatment, by, by running away, just doing whatever it takes, manipulating, just get the other to submit to our will. And meanwhile, your spouse is doing the same thing. The only net result of this pride is division, and neither party actually gets their interests met. They're unfulfilled, they're frustrated, and they're divided. But just consider the, the beauty, the wisdom of the Lord's way. I mean, what if you actually had a husband and wife where they just laid down their desires? Whatever they're after, they just laid it down. And they just concern themselves with seeking the interests of their spouse. And of course, we're only talking about righteous desires, righteous interests. But they're pursuing what their spouse wants and needs. How can I serve you? How can I lay down my life for you? How can I further your interests? What do you want? How can I serve you? I know this sounds crazy. But if a couple could just operate like that, for one, they would not be pulled apart. They would be drawn together. Because like I said, nothing unifies like sacrificial service. And then two, both of their desires would actually be met. Not by taking, but by giving and receiving. They'd be mutually meeting one another's desires. They'd be fulfilled. They'd be unified. Deny self. Humble self. Serve others. This is the way of the Lord for unity in the home. This is the way of the Lord for unity in the church. This is the practical pursuit of unity. Let me tell you a quick story. A long time ago, a group of men, you might say the whole earth, gathered together, and they were one body. They had a true unity, and they reflected on their greatness. They decided to build a city and a tower which would reach into heaven. This was a monument to themselves. They did this to make a name, an everlasting name, for themselves. This is a monument to their glory. And they started building. And they were going to do it. They were going to succeed. God came down and visited these men in a place called Babel. God said, behold, they're one people. They all have the same language. This is what they began to do. God says, now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. God himself observed that when mankind is united, nothing is impossible for them to accomplish. And this obviously is the, the Tower of Babel account from Genesis 11. The problem here was that man was united not for good, but for evil. They were united not to make God's name great, but their own name great. And remember I said God has a business of pushing down the proud, so he, he, he judged them. He scattered them across the earth. He confused their languages in judgment, God divided humanity. But a little principle can be found inside the Babel account that unity makes great accomplishments possible. Disunity makes great accomplishments impossible. Ever since that day, humanity has been divided largely along ethnic lines. If you look different, if you talk different, if you're from somewhere different, we have reasons to divide. But you do realize what God is doing with the church, right? In the church, God is reversing the scattering that took place at Babel. His plan has always been for all the nations. He's gathering together the redeemed from all the nations in one body. 
And it's really no wonder that as the church formed Acts 2 and the Spirit came, the first sign was that they spoke in tongues. They could finally understand one another. They could be one. It's a preview of heaven. The difference, though, is that this new body, this new humanity, this one new man is unified no longer to make our name great, but to make the Lord's name great. Our purpose for coming together is to exalt and magnify God's name. We were lost. We were at enmity with one another. But God, through the Son, turned us around. And now through the Spirit, God is pleased to regather us. He wants us to be unified because he has a great purpose in mind. He has a great accomplishment in mind. It can only be done through unity to build his church by his sovereignty. He wants to use us for the greatest good, to magnify his name, to spread the name of Christ to the ends of the earth, to build up the body of Christ. This is the church's mission and purpose, and it cannot be achieved without unity. We all must now pursue this way of the Lord. We must pursue the way of the Lord. And when I say way of the Lord, I mean it. Let, us not, let it not escape our notice that this passage on unity through humility is actually the foundation of the greatest passage in Scripture on the Incarnation. You normally think of a Philippians 2 as like, that's where I go for the Incarnation, but really it starts here. Just real quick, look at verse 5. He, he exhorts them to unity, and then he says right after, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Looking back, what attitude is he talking about? Verses 3 and 4, right? This unity through humility. But he reminds us, just in case you forgot, Jesus went first. He showed us the way first. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. You want to see the picture? Just read verse 6. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus came first. He humbled himself first. He served us first. He knew otherwise we would have no hope. And we would be forever lost and divided and condemned. But he leads us in a better way. He died to pay for our sins, to, to draw us to himself, to make us his body that we might be reconciled to God and now reconciled to a one new man. And so now in union to him through the Holy Spirit, we have unity. We are one in Christ. It's already true. We have unity in Christ. But practically, here below, we need to work it out and live it out and embody it. It's hard. You have sin. We all have a self-will. You have to deny self. You have to be humble. But look to Christ who was gentle and humble of heart. Remember how he humbled himself first. He served you first. And just follow his lead. Remember these things. Implement these things. Pursue these things. Especially as a church plant, you must be aligned in your purpose. I mean, you've seen those flashlights. It's like 100 LEDs all pointing in the same direction. It's a super bright flashlight. You take those 100 LEDs, you point them in different directions. You now have a worthless flashlight. And likewise, your, your power, your, your strength is going to come from your alignment. Be aligned in Christ, be aligned in truth, be aligned in love, be aligned in your purpose. And my prayer is that you would fulfill Christ's prayer for his future church when he prayed, John 17, 21, that they may all be one. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, 
so that the world may believe that you sent me. Let's make that our pursuit. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word this morning. I thank you for Community Bible Church. I know, like Paul prayed for the Philippians, they're gospel partners. They're in the race. They are serving you with a whole heart. They want to see Christ's name magnified and the body here built up. This community reached. They're a lighthouse and a refuge for this area. I'm thankful for them. I pray they might excel still more. Lord, I pray you use them for your purposes. Use this church for your kingdom plan. They're part of this one new man. May they contribute to the spread of Christ's name here. Before that, Lord, you must unify them. They need to be of one mind and one spirit. There's only one faith. So align them from Christ, their head, to Oliver and their, their leaders, and to the very body. May they find a, a total alignment, purpose, in love, in service, and in Christ. And build this body up. Use them for many years to come. I'm very thankful for them. And may this gospel lighthouse shine brightly here in this area. But humble us under your mighty hand, Lord. We long for Christ to return. But until then, may we be about his, uh, his business, his will, his work. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.